All right, my guest this week on the Drag Zine podcast is one of the greats in drag racing, in my opinion. Guy's been around the sport for a while. Just, you can't, it's awesome when someone can go by one, their name, last name alone, and that's Ron Caps. What's going on, Caps? Hey, man, how are you? I thought, usually John Force, he's called me Capsy forever, and I get fans now. Sometimes they'll show up and go, Capsy. I'm like, where'd you get that from? Like, oh, we heard you, John Force, call you that. So, uh, yeah. I appreciate Caps. it. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's great to you know, with with all the craziness we've had going on in this past racing year, it's nice to be able to start to see the racers again. The years turned over, and it's uh, starting to get that feeling again. Like, all right, we're ready to go racing. Yeah, you know, in a normal season, we we get done at Pomona, and you're so drained from that countdown and just the pressure of having to be the best of all season, that one few moments, you know, especially right at the end of the year that you're ready for the off season. And then about this time of the year, you're still not ready to get back. You're still kind of taking a breather and then you're ready by preseason testing end of January. Well, this, this whole COVID thing, I mean, we were lucky to get back to racing. So I think most people were kind of chomping at the bit just to keep going when it finally ended in Vegas. So yeah, I think everybody's kind of getting a saliva going again and uh, I just got a, a message from Napa. I get to choose the paint scheme for this year, 2021. Again, I got to do it last year, which is a huge, huge thing for anybody sponsored, first of all. But for me, it was big last year, and I got to pick a pretty cool one. With this one that we're going over right now, the fans are going to love it. It's kind of a throwback, and it's something completely different from what Napa normally does, and uh, I'm pretty pumped about it. Oh, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to see it. Definitely for sure. And you, you mentioned last season and, you know, 2020 was definitely different for sure. And, you know, we could talk about all the negative stuff that happened all day long, but to me, I think that there was a lot of positive stuff that happened in the racing world in 2020, because for me, it made me realize how much I really appreciate racing. You know, what's some of the, the positive stuff that you pulled from 2020? Oh man. Well, first of all, just getting back, to racing. I, you know, we, when COVID hit, I was on a flight to Gainesville for our Gator Nationals back in March and landing to change planes in Atlanta. I got the news that uh, the race was being postponed. And of course the world, we know where we're at right now, but then we just didn't quite know what was going to happen. So I, I did, I actually went to a Napa event that night, an autograph session um, with a few select people and got on a plane going home. And I was like, wow, what if what if we can't race? What if this gets worse? You know, and I started going all the way home on that long flight back to San Diego. And I, I, I knew that if I could get on the iRacing, which I had no idea iRacing was going to blow up. I've been with iRacing since their inception and usually gotten on the off season or sometimes here or there, you know, during the week in between races, just to keep my chops up. Nobody, nobody knew it would turn into what it did with COVID. I mean, we're talking million viewers on a Wednesday night watching us race I racing on TV, which was just crazy. So little things like that on that flight home, I started thinking, what else could I do? And uh, so there's so many negatives that people I can grab out of what happened this year. But the fact that we got to go back to racing, all that, what NHRA did, the protocols, all that stuff that seemed over the top, right? But we had to do it. Next thing you know, we're four races, five races into COVID. And we're in Texas with 50% fans. We're in Florida where they opened the whole state up back then. And uh, of course we ended in Vegas where it was the, what turned out to be the last event for fans, but it was also the first event since COVID that was uh, a sporting event in the state of Nevada. So that was huge for NHRA to come back and do that, even though it was 25%, but we were able to get the, the season finished. So it's hard to grab negatives. Um, you know, obviously the mellow yellow thing has been such a strong run with Coca-Cola and then to have what happened uh, with them was just a shocker, but boom, next thing you know, thanks to social media, which was another crazy thing, Brian, we're, we're on Twitter flirting around with, with this guy that owns camping world and me and a few other drivers, we didn't realize what it was blowing up to. And the next thing you know, NHRA is flirting with him on Twitter. And all of a sudden he's following me and a couple other drivers and lo and behold he sends a couple of his officers or people with his business to the florida race and which we ended up winning which was a great race it was dramatic it was fun and uh 
here we are, Camping World signs on as the major series sponsor for NHRA. So I think that took away any negative thing as far as the NHRA and, and uh, it really gave us something bright to look forward to. Oh, yeah. And th- that was interesting how the whole Camping World thing came about. But when I started to think about it, I'm like, look around these the pits at any event. Look at what drag racers bring to the table as far as camping. This guy all of a sudden had to go, all right, yeah, this is going to make some sense. Yeah, and if you've seen him on any shows, like I remember seeing a buddy of mine was on a painter. He was on this My Secret Millionaire, I think it's called. Um, it was a show. Well, anyway, looking back at some of the episodes, I saw that Marcus was on there. And just seeing him and some of his shows he's done, he's one of those business guys. And obviously, he saw business to business, um, which is, you know, for fans, we they tune in, they want to watch racing. They don't necessarily, a lot of times, want to know what and why and all that. But for us racers, the sport has evolved, obviously, much like any other sport, but especially motorsports, into B2B, and that's business to business. And what can you do and how – and I wake up every morning with the thought of how can I – be better for Napa Auto Parts. I mean, that's my sponsor. Driving a race car is secondary nowadays. It's so funny how Don Perdome hired me in that picture right behind you. Um, and and it was just back then, it was drive the race car. I mean, if you could be a good driver, a hired gun, uh, that was a big deal. And I didn't have to bring a sponsor and worry about it. Now, not that I brought Napa, but uh, I feel like I'm more of a representative or a salesperson for, for that company than a race car driver at times. So it's really changed the landscape of, of everything. And uh, you really have to do that nowadays to be able to have the funding and the sponsorship and all that stuff. So uh, watching him get excited about the business to business excites a, a lot of us, uh, media like you. It, it's gonna be fun to see what he, uh, what he wants to do because a lot of the negatives you speak of in the past with NHRA when you hear the fans talking about it is, you know, why haven't they done this? Or why have they stepped out and, of their comfort zone and maybe tried this or that? Well, I have a feeling this guy is going to maybe take some of that and, and make them try some things that maybe they didn't feel like they needed to. And so I think it's going to be a great relationship, man. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. And you ask any race car driver in NHRA and um, there's nothing bad about what's, what's coming. And uh, it's going to be fun to see what unfolds. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of what they're able to do with it as well. And the, the synergy it's able to bring, like you said, the, the business to the, the business side of things is really important, especially at the big show stuff, because it's to me, you know, growing up around racing and seeing, you know, how it's progressed, like the, the money side of it just is so insane these days, what it takes to keep these teams rolling down the road. You got to have those big sponsors if you want to race the whole big show. Yeah, you have to. And, you know, it's, uh, I've been pretty lucky. Uh, I certainly say lucky. I mean, I've gotten to drive for really two of the, the prolific NHRA racers, but owners for sure with Donna Snake Perdome. And then of course, Don Schumacher. I've been with Don Schumacher since uh, 2005 and really had two sponsors. That was Brute Cologne. When I, when I showed up there, for three years and then Napa came on board uh, in 08. So we're going on, you know, 12 years of sponsorship with, with Napa. And of course, all those years of Don Perdome, almost a decade. So uh, I've been very lucky, but I've also been able to watch two of the greatest, I think owners from two different, really growing up two different people, but the way they're uh, in the sport of drag race and racing period are completely different. Don Schumacher, of course, a very, big, big time businessman, Don Perdome, a painter growing up that has done nothing but pretty much race all his life and gotten to where he's at because of racing. So uh, it's been fun to really just kind of stand back at times and take notes on what they've done and how they treated sponsors. And um, definitely I've learned a lot, you know, someday I want to be a team owner where I can, uh, I can take what I've learned from these guys and what I've learned from those sponsor appearances and, and things like that and hopefully adapt that to being a team owner someday and uh, be that next step in NHRA racing, even when I get out of the seat. You know, you, you kind of segued into one of the questions I want to ask you. You spent a lot of time racing with Snake, you know, and looking back, you know, what made that period so great for you? And I'm a huge old school racing fan. For me, someone like Snake is like, 
he's like you know that that old famous picture of Jack Lambert, you know, where he just looks all you know nor- like he's a drag racing gladiator. You know, what made that great for you, and what are some snake stories that you can tell? Because Lord knows there's a lot of stories out there that might not be able to fly, but you know, you know, what was that like? This is my what twenty something year of driving, and you'd think I'd have some stock answers that I could pull up a bag. Uh, for Don Perdome, anyway, there's not a lot that I can tell without taking a little bit away from the stories, anyway, because, you know, a lot of them are just that. It, it's like the first time with Snake, I met uh, Carol Shelby. Uh, anybody that really knew Carol Shelby, I mean, this guy was a man's man, and every other word was profanity, but that's the way the guy was. And so I, I, I got to spend a little bit of time with him, and I've asked, tell me some Carol Shelby stories. I'm like, I really can't because um i can't repeat a lot of what was said but don perdome stories i it's funny because i we call them snakeisms and i do a lot of them still to this day and and i don't talk about a lot but my wife will make fun of me a little bit and she'll catch me doing one or even my brother my mom and dad will catch me because there's little things little nuances that he'll do in the way he talked and walked you know and he had the the real cool but he had so many sayings that he he didn't it was like Yogi Berra. He didn't think that they were, you know, he would say something, not even thinking it was that cool. And you'd stand back and go, where did he even think of that? And so there's little things like, you know, I used to watch him and everybody's watched him kind of do the, Hey man, let me tell you something. And they'd always kind of grab his hand. Well, I always wondered what made him do that. And I realized it one day because I'm an old school guy like you, like I I've had old school crew chiefs, which I've loved and old school owners. Um, Ed the Ace McCulloch, Rowan, Leong, Tim Richards, you know, Dale Armstrong, these guys from the old days. Uh, so I, I love going to the March meet and the hot rod reunion and being around this nostalgia part of the and hearing these old stories from these guys. And so Snake, I you look back at some of these pictures and you back in the day, they worked on it. They would have their fire boots on and their fireproof pants, those big silver astronaut looking pants. And you'd see them pulling plugs out and working on the thing, get it done, put it on the ground, put their helmet on, put their fireproof jacket on and their mask on and get in the car and drive it. And that's the way what they did. And they do it on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night in the middle of nowhere, match racing. And that's how Hot Wheels and all those sponsors came about. So I loved hearing all of those stories, but it cracked me up when he used to do this. And I figured out why, because his hands were always dirty and his, you know, snake, he's always been real thin. His fire pants weren't they didn't fit there was a little bit big for him and so if you look at some of the old video and you watch him walking around the car making tuning decisions he's walking around with his fireproof boots on and he's trying to keep his pants up but he doesn't want to get them dirty because he's like that <laughs> he's, just, he's clean everything he's ever done is sano we call it i mean it's clean it's meticulous it's roger penske's like that's always been his thing when you brought the scooter back after going to the front of the starting line, you brought it back to the pit area. He wanted them all lined up. Perfect. Even if you just parked it out there and you had to run into the pit area for a second. So everything he did. So little things like that. Uh, but it's the stories of just sitting in a rental car with him and Mario Andretti and things like that, where I just want to pinch myself and say, my God, I'm sitting next to Dom Perdome. And then I remind myself I'm actually driving for Dom Perdome. So it's, uh, it was so much fun. It's funny that, you know, for me, like I said, growing up around racing and now doing this and talking to people like you and, you know, other people, I used to chase their autographs. It, it's it's so hard for people to understand how surreal it is when you're in that moment. You're like, oh, my God, this is like what a, I'm like, I'm with these people and they're talking to me is like I'm like one of them. It, it's it's weird. It's hard. Like you said, it's hard to explain. It's in the stories and the things. Sometimes it's hard to tell the stories because, you know, they're people like the rest of us and they say and do some wild stuff. Yeah. And again, my favorite time of the year, believe it or not, even though, you know, we, we run the, uh, the camping world series, the nostalgia scene has always been it for me. The March meet is one of my favorite events to go to. And what blows me away is we'll, we'll jam up to Bakersfield. We'll get up in the morning and uh, we'll go to Zingo's cafe, which is a, you know, a place you've got to hit if you're there, it's old school. It's got old school pictures in it. And you have a big, greasy breakfast and then you head out to the track the old famosa track which is where i went as a kid and to have some of these guys that i looked up to that aren't necessarily huge names that normal fans wouldn't know but to me in in the old days 
were a big deal. I used to have posters or I'd read about them to have them come up to me at Zingo's or at the track and go, Hey man, I've been following you. I love what you do. Uh, you know, I loved watching you and Ace race together and little things like that. And they'd introduce themselves and I go, yeah, I know who you are. Like it, 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 it cracks me up that some of these guys, you know, they, they still follow the sport, but it's so cool for me to have somebody walk up like that and introduce themselves when I, and, and it just makes me go, ah, you know, like I'm having a freak out moment. Um, and it's, it's cool. It just takes it full circle. And, uh, you know, the fans love, you know, they love the old school racing too, and they love what we do. But I, I tell people all the time, what you really need to do is go to a, a hot rod reunion or a March meet to really get a taste of what it used to be like the old gassers and the alters and all that. And that's really where my mentality always is when we race. I love getting up in the morning, going to the track and talking to Tobler, his game plan. I worked on these things. So I know just enough to know what he's doing when he explains it to me that we're on kind of the same page. And I love that old school mentality of racing with a, a guy like Tobler or Ace or Snake or Schumacher, you know, just the old school mentality. You know, I, growing up, you know, we used to watch, you know, when NHRA was ever on TV, the old school stuff, you know, Steve Evans on the mic, you know, just that whole deal to me, that was my childhood. And I watch those videos now, it, you'll see the old school coverage, you know, even from the 80s and just watching like I love the crew chiefs, the old the old school crew chiefs. I mean, you talk about like mechanical madmen and geniuses, like what they were doing and what they had to work with compared to now. It's it's unreal. You know, what was it like working with those those old school guys as they kind of transitioned to this new stuff? Did, have, did they adapt well from what you saw? Or, you know, what was that like? Yeah, there's so much electronic i wouldn't say electronics there is obviously in sportsman racing but nowadays it's so weird because you know through the evolution of racing uh these crew chiefs learned how to, to change the timing obviously to take a little bit of power at a crucial time in the run and that's about eight tenths of a second to like two seconds right you really got to get that that's where the tire will either shake or come loose and smoke and if you're a good driver you've got to catch it if it's not right it will it will get you in trouble early in the run. So as for fans watching, they don't necessarily know, but really those pa that power has to be taken out mechanically. And it went through a transition from the old school to these mechanical solenoids that would actually move the distributors back then da, da, and, and put power back into it when it wanted it. But now it's, it's gone to like everything else to a chip. So I, it's funny to watch some of these old school crew chiefs adapt uh, to not only that, but the tablets, or to punch, you know, what the timing map was, what we call, they put an actual timing map in it. You know, the Ron Toblers, the Ed McCulloch's. I watched this transition, um, Dick LaHaye, when he was still around, and I, and I got to race with him, and Dale Armstrong, and just the brilliant minds. But these are all old school guys that, that still go, and, and this is the difference. Um, and I tell people all the time, because I feel like it would be cool to have at least one race, whether it's an all-star type race, where you take all the electronics off the car and the crew chief has to rely on hearing feedback from the driver. And we sort of go through that at the March meet when I've driven nostalgia, funny cars and, and alters, a lot of them don't have computers on them. So I think it'd be cool to disconnect all that, go old school and really let the driver tell the crew chief what he felt. But all these crew chiefs, some including Ron Tobler, they go down and they look at the bearings. Not every crew chief nowadays, these younger guys necessarily go out and look at their parts like these old school guys. And that's the difference the spark plugs, really checking them out, the bearings, uh, and not just staring at the computer screen. You know what I mean? So it's been fun for me to watch guys like that. For me, the big difference is I don't get a pat on the butt necessarily for doing a good job. If they don't talk to you, and I've, I've said this before about Ed McCulloch, especially, who's got a reputation of beating the crap out of people that pissed him off back in the day. So I knew that reputation. But if you don't hear anything from these kind of crew chiefs, like they just don't say anything. You've done a good job. If you hear from them, you probably did something wrong. And if you get a pat on the butt, holy smokes. I mean, it's like, it's like you scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I mean, you feel unbelievable. So I've always loved that mentality. It's been unique that I've had pretty much nothing but these old school crew chiefs from driving to Don Perdomo's with Roland Leong through, through, you know, Ed McCulloch being there with me. And again, at Schumacher's and Armstrong and LaHaye and Tim Richards and guys like that. You know, kind of going off of that, you know, 
Don Schumacher is undoubtedly going to a legend in the sport, especially with the organizations that he's built. You know, what's it been like racing for an organization that is like a professional level? Like, and like the only the only way I try to like make people understand is like this is like an NFL level organization with how they do things. What's it like racing as, as part of this family? Uh, you know, it, I didn't know what to expect when I went there. I mean, I, I drive for Don Perdome. You are there's i mean he wants you wearing the right pants when you get on the plane to travel he wants you wearing the right shirt and sport coat he wants you to you know spend the proper amount of money on a pair of good shoes that's the first thing i learned from snake is to buy a good pair of shoes uh little things like that that i learned off the racetrack but on the racetrack how to carry yourself when not to say something when to say something little things that uh, that i learned from don perdome mostly on trial and error because, you know, uh, I was thrust into that limelight. Like I went from driving Roger Prim's top field dragster to driving for one of the biggest names in the sport, let alone biggest name, probably in motorsports. He's right up there with, you know, anybody, you name any other motorsports. So it was a lot of pressure early on. Um, so when I went to Don Schumacher's, here's a business guy. Um, and the biggest compliment I, I get from Don Schumacher is, that he doesn't have to worry about me. Uh, when Napa came on board, you know, there's a lot of appearances. You follow my social media. I'm doing a lot of things, traveling in between races. The biggest compliment is he doesn't have to worry about me. Like maybe some of his other drivers at times in the past where he's had to worry, Oh my God, is how's he going to beat an appearance? He's got a big dinner and a big speech to give in front of a couple hundred representatives of that sponsor. And, and when a, when an owner tells you that he doesn't worry about it, and honestly, Don Schumacher doesn't, and in the past, even with our team, with Ace and I, when we were together, uh, and now Ron Tobler and I, he doesn't come around much in our trailer. He'll come around every run, talk to the crew chief, ask what they did, why it didn't make it down the track if it didn't, what they did to make a good run if it did, uh, pat on the butt if we won the race. Uh, but he doesn't come around a whole lot, and, and that's another good compliment. He, he, uh, he lets us do our thing but he gives you enough rope to hurt yourself. So if you are struggling, whether you're a crew chief or driver, he'll step in and let you know. And that's just the difference. It's just a different way of doing things. Snake was right in your butt. I mean, if you did something, whew, he let you know it right off the bat, very hands-on. And, uh, and so it's been fun. It's so different. But when I got there and I got that compliment from him, it's been, it's been fun. It's been nice. And he uh, gives you everything you need. And that's the other thing. You got no reason to lose. I mean, you've got every best part available and, uh, and you got the brain trust uh, better than, you know, you got teammates that you have to race that are tougher than most other teams you race. So, uh, so many people to bounce things off of that you have no reason to fail. And if you do, you're going to hear about it. You know, what, you mentioned the teammate thing, you know, what's it like as a driver being a part of, you know, essentially a, a murderer's row of nitro funny car drivers that, you know, at any one point, if they were in a separate situation would be absolutely their own gnarly team, but to have all of that ego and talent under one roof, you know, what's that like? The conversations are quite different. Um, you know, I, when I went to Schumacher's, Whit Bazemore was there and Tony Schumacher was there. You know, you fast forward, I've had Beckman, of course, now Hagen, uh, but Gary Selzy was kind of my, my buddy. And he's one of the reasons I ended up over there. Um, and so the conversations, when you sit around at the end of the day and you have a beer and you're sitting at a table with Baysmore and Tony Schumacher and Gary Selzy and guys that have won championships and crew chiefs and it just, it, the, the conversations are much different than they might be when I was sitting around working on the alcohol dragster, you know, back in the day. Um, so, it, and it's strange because a lot of times I never felt like I belong there. And then you're reminded that, you know, I've gotten to win a lot of races and I've been fairly successful. And there's a reason that you're hired to be there. So even at Don Perdome, it was the same thing, being around Larry Dixon as a teammate. And, and then of course, all those legendary people that worked under snake as crew chiefs very strange at first for me anyway i'm just a kid that grew up working on them i never you know i didn't get a license until after i'd already worked on jim rizzoli's alcohol car and daryl hitchman's alcohol dragster 
and then finally got a shot to drive the Montana Express. So I never was a guy that just jumped right into top fuel like some of the drivers like Dale Worsham. So it was strange for me to finally find myself sitting at that table. And, uh, you know, now it's cool because, you know, you sit there and I have other people that may come over that might be an underfunded team or somebody new and they come seek you out to ask those same questions. And I used to go run around looking for Bernstein or, uh, or you name it, Eddie Hill. I used to go to for advice. So it's, it's, uh, it's changed a lot, but I still feel like that kid walking into Don Perdome's pit area every morning, you know, like a rookie. Um, I, I can't wait to hear what the plan is for the day. I can't wait to hear what we're going to do. What's changed on the race car. Uh, I love that, uh, that, that whole, you know, the whole trip to get to the winter circle. It's not necessarily getting there in that final run of the day. I love, I love everything about approaching that day and trying to beat all those other teams and especially doing it with such talented people around me. You know, I've, I've crewed on a radial tire car friend of mine's car for a long time and helped out with our company cars. So I always tell people that the racing portion of what you see is like the smallest part compared to, you know, the journey, just getting to the track, if you're driving in the rig to get there and then like the whole experience, you see a lot of people that want to be about that race car life until they get thrown through that. And then all of a sudden they start to, to reconsider their decisions. And it sounds like, you know, you've always had that, that drive to really want to, you know, just eat it up. It's like the, the dog that gets the, the bag of treats tickled. You jump in the rig, where are we going? For me, I mean, my first, when I first got that job driving for John Mitchell in the Montana Express, I mean, I, I worked on the car, I drove the rig. Um, Roger Prince, top field dragster, was Terry Manzer was a crew chief, and myself, I had a CDL. So it was us two driving the 18 wheeler. I didn't even know how to, I didn't know anything about an 18 wheeler, and I actually drove one from Montana to California to get my license. I didn't even have my license, and I learned to drive it in the snow on the way down. Uh, at Daryl Hitchman's, I shared a bed with another crewman. It was only two of us on the road as crew guys with Daryl Hitchman. And we traveled around the country uh, and, and hit every Division Five race and every national event because Daryl Hitchman wanted to do that as a bucket list thing. So we slept in these small hotel rooms like this. And that was a sacrifice. I mean, that's what you did to be on the road and to race. And, you know, people don't understand. They think I just popped up in drag racing. There was a, a some driver driving for Don Perdome, but my parents raced when I was a kid. I grew up around it in, in California. And so um, for me, it's always been about that part of it, working on it. I miss working on it. I love being able to jump in there with my guys when I can, but I was a crew guy before I got a chance to drive it. So that's the other thing that's been fun for me is I know how hard the crew guys work. Uh, it's not NASCAR where these crew guys fly in and out. They work on them all day and there's no nine to five. Then they jump in the rigs and they drive all hours of the night to get these things to the next track or back to the shop. So um, I, I'm a crew guy at heart and I understand how hard they work. So I, I really uh, and I think about that when I'm driving the car. That's the other thing. When I got my license in top fuel, as soon as I felt something weird, I've always been good about getting out of the throttle before you make too much damage. And it's going to happen. And obviously it's happened a lot in my career. But I do think about uh the car as if I own it as if it's coming out of my pocket because I don't want these crew guys having to, to work on a pile of junk when it comes back from a run, um, you know, more than they have to, like a lot of other teams may have to. So, you know, I, I just, uh, there's been so much buildup to my career before I ever got a shot of actually driving. And it's just been, uh, that first Wally I got, I never thought I'd have one. And now I've got over 60 and that's just, it's crazy to even look at, the trophy case, the March meet trophy, I got to win, which was a kid growing up was the biggest race. And I finally got to win it last year in a fuel altered. So it's just been, it's been nutty to think about the stuff that I've gotten to do when all I wanted to do was just be on the road, working on one and drive one someday. That was the goal. You know, you mentioned the March meet, you talked about nostalgia racing, which I love nostalgia racing for sure. You know, gas, there's anything old school. When I get a chance, hell it, it I go to an NHRA event if it was nothing but stock and super stock for an entire day, I would not leave the wall taking pictures. You know, what's it like driving the nostalgia stuff compared to the big show cars? Because a lot of people don't realize like a legit nostalgia car, they're, they're angry monsters. There, there is no ABS. There is no 
traction control like if you compare it to a modern car they are they're kind of they're kind of brutal they're kind of gnarly yeah it was it was more of a fun thing to do with a bunch of people i love to be around to begin with dale worsham really got me pretty involved in it uh a guy named jeff gainer who had just kind of a car that didn't have a lot of good parts in fact he had a cuda and back when good guys ran nostalgia racing he probably had four or five different pistons that didn't even belong together in one engine from different people he borrowed it from and we would go race that thing and uh there's not a lot of downforce you get to shift there's no computers no tack you have to listen to the car uh it moves around because it doesn't have the big spoilers like we have with uh like my napa car and um and you take that not a step further about 10 steps for the fuel altered which that that fiat altered i drove is one of the most unnerving uncomfortable exciting but edge of your seat things i've ever driven in my life and i've got to drive some pretty cool stuff in my life um and those things short wheelbase way shorter than a funny car uh is as awesome as it gets it's amazing they make it to the finish line and most of the time they don't but to win in one of those was cool but the nostalgia scene really getting to hang out with dell drive the blue max that he built driving for uh Steve Pluger, we set the world record the first time I drove his uh, L.A. Hooker car, which is a historic, funny car from from when I was a kid. And just getting to go hang out with uh, all the people that race nostalgia. It's just a different crowd. It's much less pressure. They love having us show up because they, they feel like they get to race against the best, you know, and we're just happy to be there. And um, and I just love the atmosphere. I love walking to the starting line and watching a gassers run or the old super stock or modified production cars before, you know, what looks like our landscape of racing. It was what I grew up on. And uh, it's just so much fun to, to, to walk around and um, especially as a kid going to, to Famoso as a watching the, the March meet and the fuel and gas championships uh, to be there as a kid and go back as an adult is uh, it's pretty neat. You know, it's uh, again, it's my favorite time of the year. I'm very fortunate with what I get to do. I get to hit all of like the big races. You know, I get to go to NHRA, at least one NHRA race a year, usually really big, no prep race, radial races, the world cup. And there's, I always try to find stuff. I want to check off my bucket list. You know, it's cool. I want to check out. And on my list is one of that, that fuel alter world championship deal. I think it's down in Texas or Oklahoma. Fuel alters to me are the ultimate gnarly beast of a vehicle. I got to see a good guy show up. I've got to shoot those like they're like legit old school ones. And they want, they're like a pro mod with a nitro engine. They want to go any way, but straight. Yeah. Yeah. And like the one I drove, I think it's 110 inch wheelbase. A funny car is 125 inch wheelbase. So it's much shorter. And again, the biggest thing is no downforce. And if you look at a fuel altar, that old school Fiat body, there is zero downforce in it. There might be a little bit on a couple body panels, a little bit, but it's narrow. It's just crazy. And so Wild Willie Borsch, all those alters when I was a kid, um, you know, Burkholders and uh, Pure Hell. I mean, cars like that were like, when you heard fuel alters fire up the starting line, if I was at Orange County or Fremont or wherever track you were at, I, you ran to the fence because a, it was going to be exciting. There was probably something's going to happen good or bad. And they probably, if they both made it down the track, it was going to be like this. So it's always been exciting. So the fact I got to, to finally drive one, cause my dad had one when I was a kid, that's the car we had in the family is our race car. So there's so many, so many correlations for me that the March meet and to finally be able to drive one, but even the nostalgia, funny car scene, I love watching now the radial uh, versus the world and all those. I got into that a couple of years ago, Brian Loans uh, and some other people. I was following them as well as you uh, back east. And I logged onto one of those streams and watched it. And I could not believe how quick those cars were to, uh, to, to 660 feet. So now I'm hooked on that. And it's just, it gives you a whole new respect of, of what those guys do and girls. Um, not only drive those cars, but to, to set those cars up to run those ETs. They're almost going as quick to half track as some of our cars go on nitro. So it's crazy. If you haven't seen one as a fan, uh, check out one of these small tire radial races. It's, oh, it's crazy. It was kind of on my bucket list. Dell and I talked about doing it 
a few years back. But now I'm not sure, sure I'd want to look so stupid as to jump in one of those because, man, they are so good and, and uh, it's so fun to watch. It's funny. You listen to the guys like Kevin Rivenbark that have done nothing but race pro mod on slicks. And then they get in a radial and they're like, it's weird because it just, it sticks and it goes, you know, it's, it's either a go or a no go. It's a big tire slick car, especially like a pro mod. It's always wishy washing around. And they, they kind of dig that radial stuff because it's just, it goes and it goes quick. It'd be strange for me. I'm used to sitting in the center and that's the other thing is sitting aside and it's a sprung car, which completely blows me away that they can run that quick. So yeah, I have a whole new appreciation. I, and I, anytime I hear one that's, that's on, I'll stream it and sit and watch it. And uh, I love it. So it's uh, you know, it, as you get older, you have a better appreciation for really anything. I mean, I, I it cracks me up. You, you know, you sit and as the older you get, you sit and you watch somebody put a blower together you know, that I've watched a thousand times, a million times probably in my career. And now I'll watch a crew guy and watch how they work. And I never used to catch little things and I'll watch and I have such an appreciation for people really good at doing whatever it is. I don't care if you're a landscaper, you're a trash guy, whatever it is, <laughs> the older you get, you start really noticing things you never used to notice. And uh, especially at the racetrack. So yeah, I'm looking forward to watching some of the uh, small tire stuff this year. I got a really terrible idea that would probably be a lot of fun. Scott uh, Palmer has uh, a pro yeah, mod with a nitro yeah. engine with him and put radials on it. What could possibly go wrong? I watched that thing test on a Monday in Dallas and, uh, I, you know, I'm pretty nuts and I'll drive just about anything, but I walked away from the start line going, I don't even know if I would even get in that thing. That was, that was pretty much the ultimate, uh, the ultimate car to watch it's like half car half nitro funny car and it was nuts to watch this thing so i would love to go uh if he's going to pull it out and run it again somewhere i might have to show up and uh, stand behind it oh it's as soon as i saw that like a legit big show engine and a door car i'm i'm thinking the sfi foundation one has to be like crying because they're going through their rule book like we can't what what do you do with that you have a door car that potentially could potentially go 300 miles an hour that's that's insane i told him he needs to load it up put a really tall gear in it take it to bonneville yeah <laughs> that, would be, that would be a lot of fun wouldn't last long i don't know if we'd go two or three miles but it'd be fun to watch would not be here for a long time but boy oh boy <laughs> be a good time right yeah now another cool thing a lot of people you know the casual fan might not realize that you know you did race top fuel and funny car you've won in both you know what's kind of like the difference between the two for you you know what, what what's it like jumping from one to the other um well you can ask jr todd and langdon and some of these other guys lately that question it's changed a lot um when i got you know as a kid watching you always watch guys like don perdom if you remember he was just killing everybody in funny car and before his season his career ended he went back to dragster same with tom McEwen. Bernstein a lot of these guys did that near the end of their careers and the funny car uh I jumped back in I'd been driving for snake for quite a while went to Schumacher's I think the first year Tony Schumacher's car with Alan Johnson had just set the mile per hour record we were in Topeka and Tony had to fly out for something for army and uh and Alan asked if I'd like to drive the car and I hadn't been a top fuel car in several years and I jumped in that army car and <laughs> And I just remember uh, Jason McCulloch, some of the crew guys telling me they could read Army, 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 all the way down because I wasn't used to the dragster. And when you drive a top fuel dragster, you, you don't turn it much. In fact, you know, most of the time you drive it one handed. And even then you didn't have a, a tight grip on it for any reason. You just didn't want to make big moves. Uh, I learned from Mike Dunn early on in top fuel that you could save a run by reaching over and just tugging on the brake with your ring finger. Just a little tug if it shook the tires. And that would usually clear it up. And you can't do that in a funny car. It's got front wheel brakes. So the biggest difference for me was the amount of steering right off the bat. And Snake warned me. He told me over and over. And the first time we took the Copenhagen car out for me to get my license, I was, I almost put it in a wall. I just didn't realize that you had to do it that much. And you've got to really jab at it. So they've changed a lot, a lot more downforce. You don't have to steer them as much as I did early on in my career. But the dragster moves so much harder early on when the clutch comes in because it can, it's flexible and all that. It really plants you back. 
Um, but as we've seen in the past, mile per hour's records have been broken by funny cars faster than dragsters at times. And so the funny car is a, is a handful. Uh, I was just, who was I with this just last week? And I was talking about the difference be, being really at night when you go back to your motor coach or your hotel room and you take a shower, your funny car driver, you take a shower and you start blowing your nose in the shower and clutch dust comes out of your, between your toes and your fingernails and your ears, your Q-tips are all black. You're, you blow clutch dust, snot in the shower out. It's just, you find clutch dust and dirt and grime in every crevice. Whereas a dragster, you, you're up front, you don't get anything dirty, everything stays clean. Um, quite a bit of difference. And I used to have to be careful because I used to say that you really had to manhandle a funny car, right? Until now we got all these, these women driving it and kicking our butts. So I, and, and I had teammates driving dragsters and I had to be careful when I became a funny car driver. So the difference has gotten smaller because you have more downforce in a funny car and you don't quite have to move it as much as we used to have to, but um, huge difference when they drop that body for the first time and you're a dragster driver and that funny car body comes down, you don't want any part of it. And I, I, I think I had him shut it off the first time we lower the funny car body on the Copenhagen car because it scared the crap out of me just dropping that body around. So big difference. Um, and it takes a driver, even a really good driver, like you saw Langdon and J.R. Todd and some of these other guys, really good drivers. It took a season for those two to get used to a funny car when they made the switch. So that that tells you how much difference there is. Now, let's play a hypothetical situation. You are given the opportunity to race any other class, any other kind of drag car you want, what would you get in? It can't be a nitro car. Would you do pro stock, pro mod? Would you jump on a bike? I mean, you know, what, what would you want to race? Probably pro mod. I, I, I've, I've always wanted to take a lap. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably say pro mod. It, it, another NHRA class, if, if that's the choice. Um, you know, I, I love watching the uh, the Hemi Challenge cars. I've always wanted to do that. And uh, so maybe someday I'll get a chance to jump in one of those for the, you know, the U.S. Nationals or something. But I, I think the Pro Mod cars and the way they've evolved, um, not one of the torque converter cars that shifted on their own. I followed all that, and it really bummed me out that they took all that away from the drivers. Uh, and I don't even know where it's at. It was changing so much. But – maybe a few years back when they were really the drivers really having to drive those things and pay attention to what was going on and shift them. Um, that would be a car I'd want to jump in. You know, there's a couple guys in like the PDRA that actually found some ways in the, in the rules to get an advantage that they're running like a small block car with a clutch and it is gnarly. And there's a guy locally here in Ohio, Matt Hutter owns Hutter racing that has a twin turbo pro mod car with a clutch in it and that thing is gnarly it sounds yeah, angry that. oh it's that that thing is it you know when he's getting up on the chip and when he's driving that car because it's it's a totally different sound yeah yeah see that, that's the kind of thing i'd want I, you know maybe someday i've talked to a couple of promo drivers about jumping in their car maybe maybe someday it'll happen yeah, the Hemi Challenge cars too. That's another thing that well, I got to shoot that at the U.S. Nationals. That was awesome because like the super stock AH cars. That was like me and my dad when those things would come up, we would go watch them in super stock. Oh, it's a it's a Hemi car. It's just they have a different kind of like aura around them, and they are some gnarly cars. They are wheels up for a long way. It, you know, when I was a kid, modified production um, was a big the big class. You know, obviously pro stock was, but the modified production cars when I was a kid and just the different array of cars, small block, big block, Mopars, Chevy Fords, whatever. It was just such an eclectic group of cars that would go out and run four speeds. And, you know, it was just a blast to watch. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I like the uh, here at Columbus. They had it a couple of years ago during the big uh, uh, the Jags race they had out here. They had the super stock K shootout and it was all stick shit, like a lot of old Novas and stuff like that. You know, they're not the fastest ones, but again, it's all four speed cars. And, you know, they just, they have a different sound, you know, just yeah. coming off that chip. It just, it's, it sounds so awesome. It does. Uh, on that note, uh, I know the winter nationals last year had them and I've seen them at a couple other events, but they have that class now with a nostalgia pro stock. I'm not sure if you've seen any of these guys run, Oh, yes. 
old looking cars and they go out there and they bang gears uh, just like when we were kids. Um, and I, I hope that NHRA brings those guys and girls to more races. That was, that, that was pretty cool to walk up in the pit area and see an old school looking car, like grumpy Jenkins car, you know, and to go out and, and you, you knew right off the bat when uh, you wake up in the morning, the motor home, and we're about a thousand foot where we park our motor home and you hear the first run down the track and you hear them shift just like old days. And uh, so anyway, I hope NHRA brings those back. There's a series of those that runs up here in the Midwest a lot. And uh, they had them on display at the Detroit Autorama a few years ago. And that was like, I just literally, I, I had a pattern. I was walking around, you know, the cars I was going to look at, take pictures of. I saw that display. I'm like, all right, we're, we're breaking the plan. I've got to go look at each one of these cars and read about them because it's just those things to me, they all look like cars. And like you said, the, the whole feel of them, the dry hops, the banging of the gears. I mean, it's yeah, big shifters in there, just like they used to have. Yeah. Very cool. I, I love watching the, uh, the old videos. You'll see of those guys like grumpy, you know, or is it Landy ripping the gears with the cigar in the mouth? I mean, those guys, yeah. they knew how yeah. to drive. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and you know, it, it's, it's, it's again, it falls back to the stuff you don't get to see these days. I think it was like a, uh, I was watching an old NASCAR in car camera coop kind of on the same subject. It was like uh it was Dick Trickle, like in the car during a caution lap, dude lit up a cigarette. Like it's yeah. on the ESPN cam. He's yeah. smoking inside the car. It's like things you wouldn't see in modern racing. Nope. Nope. They, they probably back in the day probably smoked a lot of different stuff and got in cars and you never heard about it. <laughs> no, no, the totally different league. And you know, you've ripped some cars, ripped some laps in a uh, dirt track cars. You know, what do you enjoy about that whole deal? You need to the prelude to the dream, if I remember correctly, and stuff like that. You know, what, what's it like, you know, driving one of those cars? That, I mean, that particular event, I got to do every year. I, I got called from, from Tony Stewart when he came up with the idea the very first year we did it. And I got invited every year, which was something I looked forward to, to see if I was going to get that invite every year. Um, that was fun, mainly because it's just so, it was so out of my comfort zone. Uh, I would race some California tracks, you know, a few times a year to, to get some seat time before that big race. Cause that's one of the fastest half mile dirt tracks in the world. And to race those big late models like that next to Jimmy Johnson or Kyle Busch or Tony Stewart was always a blast. And, and uh, you know, I, before that I did some stuff with Tony Stewart, some sprint cars and midgets, but uh, we raced a chili bowl a couple times. Uh, Gary Selzy and I went and, uh, you know, getting to do stuff like that is just a dream. Cause I, I was a huge dirt fan growing up and my dad used to help build engines for a few dirt guys where we lived sprint cars and, and some other cars. So it was always a dream of mine. And so another cool thing about getting to drive for somebody like Don Prudhomme and getting, I guess, making the big time, if you want to call it was getting a chance to go jump in cars like that. I would have never got a shot at doing to to race a midget at the chili bowl, which I, I still say is probably one of the coolest races, uh, for a race fan to go see if you haven't seen it um hopefully everything clears up with COVID and you get a chance it's uh it's hard to explain to somebody how cool that race is it's just gotten bigger and bigger um but getting to do that stuff was really fun and Don Prudhomme was always real cool about letting me go do and race other things like that uh yeah I could have got hurt in fact I could have got hurt and almost did at the Chili Bowl uh, but he let me go out and do that because he knew that in my mind it helped me be a better funny car driver and I can't tell you how many races when we smoked the tires and I was smoking them next to somebody and having to pedal them for a win, uh, turn the wind light on because of that feel that I got in a dirt car. It really did help. And it still does to this day. So uh, just so much fun to go do that stuff. And more than the camaraderie you get from being around a Tony Stewart, a Casey Kane and Selzy and I would go do that all the time. And uh, just, uh, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, so many good memories, but uh uh, a midget at the chili balls ranks probably right up there with anything I've ever done. I live relatively close to Eldora and I've been to all the crown jewel events. I've even got to cover a couple of them and, and shooting at Eldora in one of those crow's nests when like during a feature race and everybody's diving into one of those turns, but literally I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it, especially on a late model. Cause I tell people late models that's hockey on wheels if you, if your car has every panel still on it, you didn't run the whole race. Yeah. You know, and the good guys, you know, would get up there next to the fence. They'd come back with either the right rear 
uh, body gone. And I did too, but it was by accident. I, I didn't have the talent to get up there. And I tried it a couple of times, but to watch the really good guys get up there, Tony and uh, uh, Clint Boyer and guys like that, that were really good that could take it up there. I was just fine staying down on the inside and bottom feeding or sometimes venture up, you know, the middle of the track. But there were so many times I just looked around in the middle of this race going, I am so far over my head right now. Um, but that's what made it cool. It, it, you just feel like I am so, I shouldn't be here right now. And I am so uncomfortable right now, but you somehow overcome that. And, you know, I finished uh, sixth there. I think the second time I ran there and uh, finished ninth, I think the third time. So just to go there and, <coughs> excuse me, not make a fool of myself and not wreck the car. Pretty much always brought it back to the owner in one piece and running. Um, and that was always the goal. That was the first goal. And not to hurt myself was a second. But um, learned so much. But to be at those driver's meetings and look around and see the pure talent that uh, that was around and the smiles on some of those NASCAR guys and Formula One and some of the guys that showed up to race it in IndyCar, uh, you never saw them smile that much at a racetrack. And yet here we were uh, at Eldora everybody having a great time because we were all just uh, a little bit out of our comfort zones. And uh, yeah, I missed that race. So I talked to Tony a few times about bringing it back and he's, he's working on something else right now that this should be a lot of fun. You know, it's funny you mentioned your racing midgets, at the chili ball. I just watched the Tulsa shootout out at my shop this past weekend with the 600 cars and the midgets at Eldora. Could you imagine running one of those there? Cause they go through the turn four wide. And I mean, Viewers, you got to go watch USAC midget races. Go on YouTube and watch it. They are angry little cars that are yeah. just badass to watch. I couldn't imagine driving. I've got it on iRacing, and I wadded the car up the first time around and I haven't got yeah. back in it again. I mean, they are totally different to drive. And you watch the good guys there as well, and they will pin it up by the wall wide open. I mean, you watch Paige Jones, unfortunately, got hurt real bad there years ago. But the guys at uh, Wolfgang and some of the sprint car guys that – you watch in the past that, that that just put it up next to the wall. It's just you think to yourself, how do you do that? I mean, how do you even pull that off? It's crazy. Now a lot of people don't realize too that another NHRA racer's done some laps in a car. Doug Coletta, you know, he's he's a pretty uh, tough dude. You you ever want to mix it up with a uh, Doug out on the dirt track? I have many times actually. Oh and, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, we he's Selzy and I have dragged him to a couple of the uh, the races we did the, the um, charity events that we did in, in late models. Uh, we ran, we used to do a couple events. One was in Houston. There's a dirt track next to the Houston drag strip. And I'm not sure if they still run it there. It's a pretty, pretty good bank, three eighths mile, I believe. And uh, they had the wild idea to put some of those drag racers on a Friday night after qualifying in a bunch of, uh, they were small motored, I think late models. And they wadded quite a few up, but uh, Doug whooped us. Every time I've raced dirt with him, just so smooth. And I used to watch him with Davis Bain and Thursday night thunder Winchester and places like that. So I knew uh, when guys like Tony Stewart talk about the drivers that they aim to beat was guys like Doug Coletta, you know, how good he was. And so, yeah, it was fun, but he whooped our, our rear ends every time I've gotten on dirt with him. Um, he's pretty good. It still is. It's crazy. Uh, the, on flow racing they have the flow 24 7 and they picked up all the old thursday night thunder stuff yeah i and watch one, it all the time one yeah. of the races i popped on i'm like i forgot doug Clutter. oh he's out there with tony stewart it's like wow it's like things that happen then that you don't realize how prolific they are until now it's like wow that's kind of wild yeah i love watching all this stuff and for any fans right now tuning in you're kind of uh google jack hewitt <laughs> Jack Hewitt interview, and he this is a guy that won a lot of open wheel races. It's my favorite interviews to watch to this day, um, especially Eldora. There's a couple of them. Uh, that's another guy that was on the other day. I saw Doug Coletta, Tony Stewart, um, Dave Darlin, all those guys that I just love to watch on those old school Thursday night shows with Dave Despain, uh, which is great. <laughs> I got a story about that, dude. Um, Jack couple- Hewitt? Yeah. <laughs> a couple years ago, we were up at Eldora covering an event and he did. I had no idea who he was. No idea. He parked his truck by one of the dumpsters at the track. Well, or in the camping area at Eldora, which is let alone its own interesting place. Well, some of the uh, 
the the track crew the the people didn't appreciate that too much and they kind of got a little bit ugly with jack oh boy they quickly learned <laughs> why this was a bad idea he, uh, he, oh it, it, a lot of things were said i can't repeat yeah. long story short jack <laughs> got his laughs out of them he got what he wanted they said you know, we're going to go talk to Tony Stewart. Jack's like, here, let me get my phone out and have you call him. Yeah. They had Still no this day, best, best motorsports interviews, period. If, if anybody watching right now wants to see the best interview in racing, type in Jack Hewitt interview on Google <laughs> and oh, enjoy. We, after he said, like, we found out who he was, he gave me a sticker to put on my truck. Really cool guy. My wife, we Googled him and I started watching those interviews. I'm like, this dude was wild classic and good very yeah. good yeah yeah you know you, when you have a race named after you you've, yeah. you've done good and that kind of you know speaking of a legend like that it brings us to my last thing i want to talk with you about you know your legacy when you hang up the helmet you know what do you want people to remember your nhra racing legacy for um god probably one of the coolest things I get said to me by fans or how much they love the fact that I, I'm just, I want to race. Um, I never did it for the money. It's amazing. I've gotten to make a living doing what I would have paid to go do and what I actually, you know, was around as a kid, but the fact that I've got a great family and a house and made a living and driven for some great sponsors and, and owners uh, the fact that I just love to race. I mean, um, in these compliments you get from a Robert Height or Selzy or any of the guys that I've raced with in the, in the past, or even right now, when they, you know, you're at the banquet or wherever you're at, at the end of the season and people are just letting loose and just kind of relax a little bit and talking about um, to hear another driver that I really, really get up for um, tell me that they, they, they don't want to see us the next round, but they were one of the toughest racers to race. And that I think is the biggest probably compliment and thing I want to be known for is just in, enjoying it. You know, um, I didn't early on with Don Prudhomme. I, I didn't look much past the next day. I didn't think I needed to back then. It was getting the car, do what I had to win. And uh, as you know, you get a little older and you start kind of trying to, you know, um, enjoy it more, but you can enjoy it while you're doing it because you feel like you get a step behind somebody. If you just take one second and I've talked to this about guys, I battled with a championship down to the wires. You you're right in the middle of a championship hunt and one hiccup and you could lose something you've dreamt as a kid, your whole career, your whole life. And that's all you think about. And you've worked this whole season for this one moment. And if you sit back one second and go, man, that was cool, that run we just made, you feel like you just lost a step. So, um, you know, to hear another driver like that say how much they, uh, they get up for racing you because you're just a racer and you're always tough to beat, uh, that's probably the biggest compliment. And I don't think I've made a lot of enemies, you know, you know over the, my career. You know, that's another thing I'd like to be known for is, you know, I've, I race clean. Um, I'm not a dirty racer and uh yeah it's tough it's tough it's a tough question you think it's another question you'd have an answer for but yeah it's uh um yeah it's probably it just being be known as a really tough racer and there's that that's a great way to to put it and a great way to wrap things up here you've been an awesome guest ron i appreciate you coming on and I always like to give my guests their opportunity to channel their inner John force and thank all their sponsors and tell them where they're at. Um, you don't have to impersonate John. Alexis did that and she took it to another level. So I always, you know, open it up to you to thank your sponsors and who you race for, tell people where they can see yet, you know, and just get after it. So uh, I turn the floor over to you, my friend. Yeah. Imitate John force is probably not a good idea unless you practiced a lot. Or I've got to have a couple of drinks in me to, to do the real good John Force. But um, no, it's just, uh, you know, it's been fun through my career to be uh, obviously associated with all the sponsors we've had, but Nap Auto Parts, uh, Dodge, Pennzoil has been a big sponsor. 
but mainly I just want to thank all the people that have been around me on my teams and um, these trophies like the world championship and all the wallies I've gotten. Um, yeah, the sponsors have been there, but really the people have been, uh, you know, that's the thing. You just, these memories you have of doing things you could never have done. Um, and it's the people that are with these sponsorships and, you know, we talked about this the other day with somebody else is you're, you're plastered with all this stuff on, right. And you've got it all over your suit and the top end interviews and you don't want to get out and thank every sponsor every time because the fans get burned out on it, but they want to know about that run in that car. They want to know how you felt going 3.8 seconds at 339 miles per hour and how it took your breath away. And so that's one thing uh, Steve Evans told me one time in a bar, by the way, um, is he said, let these people know at home what you just went through. So, um, I try to do that in my interviews and I try to do that um, as often as I can. So I just want to say thanks mainly to the people that put these hot rods, these cars together to allow me to step on the gas and get to do the coolest thing in the world is just drive a nitro funny car. Cause there was nothing, there's not a better job, maybe an astronaut. Uh, I can only think of a couple other things that might be as cool, but um, just the people that have been around me throughout my career um, past and present. And uh that's who I want to thank. Very well put, Ron. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to seeing you out on the track uh, this coming season of 2021. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.